So Nick read to verse 26. We're actually going to go all the way to verse uh, 43 in uh, John chapter 12. So please turn there and you can follow along. Um, What he read, what Nick read merely sets the context for everything that we're going to talk about today. And I want to start by just simply asking this question. Um, And I want you just to consider this as we go through this. What is it like when it's time for you to resign yourself to betrayal and rejection. Think about what that's like, because we've, we've, all had, we've all had that experience where we realize betrayal and rejection have already happened to us or they are coming our way and how difficult that is. But we don't care for it. We don't care for betrayal. We don't care for rejection. It's a break of trust. It's a break of relationship. But sometimes, in fact, we are called to resign ourselves to it and not just be, be resigned to it. This is really hard. Sometimes we're asked to move toward it because that's exactly what Jesus had to do. He calls us into this life of the gospel, and I know some of you are like, gospel's good news. That doesn't sound like good news. We'll, we'll, we'll do our best to uh, unpack that tension for you today. Uh, Just prior to this passage, I want you to understand the context of the passage, what's happening. This is now uh, the last, the beginning of the last week of Jesus' life here on earth. In chapter 11, right before this, he's raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, Now, if you read the story, this is fascinating. He raises Lazarus from the dead. There were many people who saw this miracle and believed in Jesus, and many others who did not. In fact, they got very angry about this miracle, and some of the professional religious people even began to plot to assassinate Lazarus, because Lazarus' resurrection was a problem for them. So now they're plotting to, res- uh, to assassinate uh, Lazarus. And then right after this is the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. So for like a millisecond, he's really popular, and if And if you're interested in this, we're studying Zechariah on Wednesday nights, and 500 years earlier, Zechariah has a passage in his message 500 years earlier that talks about the Messiah riding on a colt, on a donkey, into uh, Jerusalem. So this, this fulfills that prophecy by Zechariah. So he's got this moment of popularity in Jerusalem. They were lined up to see him, that they were happy to see Jesus coming into Uh, Jerusalem. So he's popular, and he's sought after, and people want to see him. And the text tells us that some God-fearing Greeks had come to see Jesus. Now, so God-fearing Greeks, what does that mean? The the word Greek there doesn't necessarily mean people from Greece, okay? It it means non-Jews, people who are not Jews, or Gentiles who love God. They're on board with Yahweh. Um, they're, They're the type that would be allowed into the outer courts of the temple, but no further because they were not Jewish. But they were, they were going into the temple, the outer courts, and they were worshiping Yahweh there with the Jews, in, in a sense, because they believed in Yahweh, but they were not uh, Jewish. And they were so on board with Yahweh that they were willing to travel to Jerusalem from all over the land to worship at Passover. So it's possible that they were Greeks from Greece. It's, that's possible. But Regardless, they were probably from somewhere else, and they had to travel a long way 
and a long time to be able to get to Jerusalem to be there. And now they want to talk to uh, Jesus. But even though Jesus' entry was really big and he was really popular in this moment, we have to understand this is now the beginning of the end of Jesus' public work and public ministry. He's really close to the cross now. His popularity is going to wane quickly and fickleness will prevail. So let me reread again what Nick uh, read and we'll kind of dive into that and then we'll go um, from there. So 20 through 26. Now among those who went up to, the, uh, to worship at the feast, this is Passover, were some Greeks. So they came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. It's possible that they felt sort of a connection to Philip because he wasn't from the area, um, uh, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went to Andrew. Andrew and Philip then went and told Jesus. And Jesus answers them. Now, the them there is the subject of some question. Is he answering Philip and Andrew? Is he answering the Greeks? My assumption is that they, they kind of went with him, and they're all there. So he's answering everybody uh, at this point. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Okay, so... I've already had this conversation with some people this morning. You're good readers, that means, okay? They ask Jesus this question, and he gives this answer. Huh? What? <laughs> okay, I, I don't think that's the answer they're looking for. It, there has to be some confusion there, unless you're steeped in this and you really understand what's going on. So what is going on? They're coming to him to find out more about God. They figure Jesus might know. And Jesus is, in fact, telling them about God. They've just never heard God explained in this way before. He's explaining how a disciple, a follower, will live in response to their salvation. You just heard Rose up here talking about how she is living now in response to her salvation. Without the context of church, that might be a little bit confusing to us, but we invited her up here to talk about her salvation and talk about why she got baptized. That makes sense in that, in that context. So he's explaining to them how a follower, he's assuming that they're really interested, they're, they're God-fearing Greeks. So he's saying, okay, here you go. Now, this is going to be the life. And he describes that life this way, from death, death to self comes life. Death produces and reproduces life. That's what Jesus is teaching. And he says, wheat, for instance, when it dies, it reproduces its own kind. He's also previewing his death. Jesus needs to die so that he can then reproduce disciples of his. And disciples also must die to self in order to love and serve others and even to reproduce. That's what happens. In other words, here you go. Death bears fruit. Death bears fruit. Again, I've been on this since we've been doing this series. Love is great. And love can be a lot of fun. Love can feel good, right? 
But genuine love also does what it has to. Genuine love is also a covenant and a commitment, and it's going to do what it has to do, which sometimes that's not fun, and it doesn't feel so good. And that genuine love is going to require death at times. When I do premarital counseling, uh, one of the things we talk about is Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and did what? Gave himself up for her. That, that, that's like euphemistically saying he died for the church. Genuine love dies to self. Um, John Horry, who is uh, somebody who works for See Jesus, works for Paul Miller, who wrote the book Love Walked Among Us, he explains that you and I can experience, but don't always experience, but you and I can experience three time kinds of death in our life. And, and we're just going to put them up on the screen and talk about them. So here's the first kind of death. All of us experience this kind of death. This is the human condition. This is suffering. This is tribulation. This is challenge coming at us. Trouble coming at us. No matter what you do, don't you feel like trouble's coming at you? Not all the time. I understand that. But during our, our walk, our life, our journey, in the marketplace, in our families, at school, Politically, whatever it is, there's trouble coming at us. Um, uh, physical ailments, there is constantly trouble coming at us. This is just the human condition. We all suffer in some ways. Uh, the author Jerry Sitzer uh, says that suffering is both uh, universal and unique. Everybody suffers, but everybody suffers differently. We all have a story of suffering in some way. That's just being human. Here's the second kind of death. This is when I couldn't figure out graphically, maybe you, if, you're a, if you're really good with word, you could help me with this, how to get trouble underneath the little person standing there, okay? Because this is trouble in us. Now there's trouble in us. There's that turmoil. There's that wrestling. There's that tension that comes when we begin to realize that it's not just that trouble is coming at us, but we also are trouble ourselves. We have a sin nature. We are poor in spirit. We cause a lot of our own suffering. We are part of the problem. This is trouble in us, and this is when repentance happens. This is when conversion happens. Now, now we embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we have faith. That's the second kind of death. And then the third kind of death is this. Because of who Christ is in us and his life example where he was always moving toward trouble, now we move toward trouble. Isn't this hard? But this is the ultimate dying to self. This is the ultimate death. When we now see trouble, and rather than trying to run from it, rather than trying to blame shift, we now, we now move towards it in love. This is love. This is the gospel love that Jesus is calling us to in the gospel. And verse 23 in our passage even says, The hour has come for the Son of Man, Jesus is talking about himself, to be glorified. What does he mean that he's going to be glorified? He's going to be glorified through his death. 
His death is what's going to glorify him. Not as a martyr, but as the Savior. Because he's going he's to be resurrected. So now look at verses 27 through 33. The story continues. Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled. Uh, that word troubled means I'm, I'm in anguish. Uh, even this, this word is often used to describe the Davidic lament psalms, all the psalms of, of sorrow that David wrote in the psalms. Okay? He says, my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? By the way, one of the reasons he's troubled is because he knows he's going to be betrayed. Okay? What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? It's a rhetorical question. Okay? But for this purpose I have come to this hour, the purpose of dying on the cross. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd stood there and heard it and said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So verse 27, this is John's parallel to the other texts in the other Gospels of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prays and, and he's sweating blood and he's under such stress and tension. And, and he says, God, if there's a way, please remove this cup from my hand but not my will, but your will be done. This, this is the parallel uh, to that. And the result is the same. doesn't matter how it's worded in the Gospels. The result is the same. In spite of the agony, in spite of the reticence, there is a total commitment by Jesus to this mission of going to the cross. The, the, by the way, the dilemma is pretty simple if you think about it. Jesus prayed to be saved from the cross. He could, he could pray that, which would, if, if he is saved from going to the cross, it would help him in his humanity, but only temporarily. It would also end the mission of God if he was saved from the cross. But he could also pray, as he does in the other Gospels, he could pray for strength to submit to the Father's will, to submit to this plan, to not have the cup taken from him, which would thereby glorify the Father, here you go, when salvation comes for us. God is glorified when we are saved. It's a pretty incredible thing. And that salvation becomes a fact for us through the resurrection of Jesus. So here's, here's what this is all about. It's all about three things. This is about God's glory, but His glory is manifest in Jesus' death, which also means it's about his humanity. Jesus is God, and we talk about him as God a lot. I don't know that we talk about him in his humanity enough. He was wrestling with this in his humanity. This was going to be painful. Nobody wants to be crucified. And he was being crucified for others, and he was being crucified unjustly. This is, this is also about his humanity. It's about the Father's glory. It's about Jesus' humanity. And then it's about our redemption. Those three things, the glory of God, the humanity of Jesus, and our redemption. This is what we're looking at right here in this passage today. 
And I know for some, this, these are stark and even unpleasant terms and concepts for some people. But it's also this incredible picture of his love for us. Imagine being loved this much. That's how much we're loved. It's been said that God is the only person in the world who is attracted to desperation. And believe it or not, we're all desperate without Jesus. We just may not realize it. And that, that attraction that God has for our desperation is manifest in the greatest love story ever, which is Jesus on the cross. That's the greatest love story ever. For those of you that might remember, the greatest love story is not Ryan O'Neill and Ollie McGraw. Millennials are like, what are you talking about? Uh, the greatest love story, here you go, here's another one. It's not Robert Redford and Barbara Streisand, which we would all agree with anyway. Here you go. It's not Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper, all right? It's not that one either. These are not great love stories compared to what Jesus has done. You look at verses 28 and 29. The Father's voice comes from above. As far as I can see, there's only two other times in the Gospels this happens. Matthew 3 at the baptism of Jesus, and then Matthew 17 at the transfiguration of Jesus. And here we have three responses. Three responses to uh, the Father speaking from heaven. The first one is, oh, it's thunder. What this symbolizes for us are those people who hears, hear God's message but are deaf to it. Okay, get this. They hear God's message but they are deaf to it. Okay? They, 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 they categorize God speaking as not a supernatural event but just a natural event. Oh, that, that was thunder. That, we can explain that away. It's what we've been saying for weeks. Some people will not believe because they will not believe. There's no other reason. They will not believe because they will not believe. This analogy may work for some. It may not work for others. I don't even know if it's good. Maybe I won't use it in the next two services. But here you go. Paris Hilton is famous. Why? For being famous. She's famous for being famous, okay? So there's no other reason for her to be, to be famous other than she's famous. It's a weird thing. Some won't believe because they will not believe. Jesus even says that in, in John chapter 10, okay? In, in other words, the rational mind becomes a slave to the passions. They're watching this. They've seen Lazarus resurrected. They're watching all of this happening, and they're just explaining it away because they don't want to believe, Okay? Then there's the idea that it's the angels. Okay, well, we're okay with supernatural, but it must be the angels. This symbolizes those who hear God's message of love and are enticed by it but won't commit. There are people that are just kind of flirting around the edges. They're enticed by it. They're kind of open to it, but they'll never commit. They'll never actually cross that line of faith. Again, the rational mind continues to be a slave to the passions. I'm too worried about what I'd have to give up in order to follow Christ. And then verses 30 through 32 is what happened for those who hear, are moved by, and receive. There's conversion and transformation. Further, it says that Jesus draws all people. Here's what that means. It means he draws all kinds of people. He, he, draws, he draws Jews and Gentiles. He draws rich and poor. He draws black and white. He, he draws, uh, amazingly, sun devils and wildcats and antelopes and lumberjacks. I wanted to make sure we covered everybody, okay? He draws hockey fans and soccer fans, occasionally. 
okay? For those who come to faith in Jesus, their judgment took place on the cross and was taken by Jesus. End of story. For those who remain steadfast in their unbelief, they're going to suffer the judgment on their own. That's not good news. And that word draw is interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm a word nerd, so I look deeper in it. That, that Greek word that we translate as draw is primarily used in other ancient Greek uh, settings, other ancient Greek literature, uh, primarily to talk about what somebody does when they get water out of a well or when they go and dive into uh, the Mediterranean looking for treasure and they, see, and they find treasure from the sunken ships and they draw the treasure out, okay? But I just want you to think about the implications of that. That's, that's the word draw, and maybe I'm drawing too much out of this, but just think about this. How do we draw water out of a well? Do we stand at the edge of the well and say, come on, water, come, 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 come on, a little higher, come on. We have to go get the water. We have to go get the water. We have to go get the treasure. You, you understand, Jesus is coming for us. He's been described as the hound of heaven. Some of you have been trying to hide from him. If he's coming for you, you're going to be drawn. Give it up. We got some water out there right now. Let's close the deal. That's the most televangel televangelist I'll ever get in my life, okay? So just... But you get the point, okay? He's coming after us. He's not passive about this. And, and verse 31, there is the reality that when Jesus went to the cross, it appeared that he had lost. It appeared that he had lost. Satan, Satan has some trouble with the cross because it's like, mm, yeah, but I know he's going to be raised. God has already said, I'm going to wound him, but he's going he's to crush me. And he crushes Satan at the resurrection. He has won. I know it doesn't feel like that sometimes now, but he has won. We're just living in that weird already but not yet tension that maybe some of you have heard about before. So Satan knows he's done. He's still active, but he's done. And then verse 32 there's the answer for the Greeks. There's the answer for the Greeks. It, and it's not what they were expecting, but it is exactly what they need. Jesus says, you're just a tad early, but, but very soon you're going to understand. You're going to know. And I'm telling you that once you know, this is how you need to respond to it. You need to be like a grain of wheat that falls and dies because that's where life is. And then 34 through 43 we're going to do another 10 verses because it's powerful and relevant to what's going on here. So starting in 34. So the crowd answered Jesus, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. So how can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? We have an understanding of what the Messiah is going to be. The Messiah is going to be all about us. Apparently, you're going to do something different. Okay, we don't understand that. We don't even like it very much. Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him. They will not believe because they will not believe. 
uh, believe. So that the word spoken from the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then he, uh, John quotes Isaiah. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. That would be Isaiah 6. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in Jesus, but, but, for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They prefer the affirmation of other human beings to the affirmation of God. Verse 34 is our problem, too. We need a Savior, but a Savior certainly cannot be a Savior if he or she is not here right now leading us to political victory, economic victory, and, and military victory. That's what a Savior does. Politics, economics, and military. What kind of Savior, what kind of goofy Savior would only save us spiritually and eternally? I'm not interested in that. And verse 37 and following is just the incredible power of unbelief. Darkness is actually attractive to a broken and fallen soul. Entering and walking in the light requires trust and faith. It requires self-examination. It requires owning the trouble. It requires that second death, and that can be really painful and hard. And verse 37 is just a reminder that those who say, if only God would do a miracle for me, then I'd believe. And the answer is no, you wouldn't. What more can he do? What more could he do? In Luke, he tell, Luke 16, he tells that prophet of Lazarus and the rich man, and the rich man is now separated in Hades. And, and he cries out, and he, and he says, please go to my household and tell my brothers that this hell place, it's real and it's not pleasant. Please go and tell them. And he said, they have, they have Moses and the prophets. They've already heard. They've already seen. They already know. Me going and telling them isn't going to matter. Lazarus was raised from the dead. Doesn't matter. Jesus feeds the 5,000. Doesn't matter. He makes a man born blind 40 years to see. Doesn't matter. It's, it's a red herring. It's subterfuge. It's the person who says, I don't have any other argument now. I just don't want to believe. And then we have the motivation clearly outlined in verses 42 and 43. I, I, I don't, I don't want to be one of those goofballs that, that has a Bible. Well, you can have it on your phone now. You, you don't have to carry it around. You don't have to look like a goofball. If that's what you're worried about, okay, maybe tweet an occasional Bible verse. Ooh, okay. You know. So we're so worried about what other people think. We're all affirmation addicts, as Tom Parker has said, every one of us. We, some of us just hide it better. Uh, than others. It's fascinating to me. Um, if you attend redemption or if you're looking at redemption, if you're wondering about redemption, it might help if you read our statement of faith. I'm always fascinated by people who attend the church for quite a while and then they find out that we believe something goofy like spiritual warfare, like Satan, like the, the goofy things that we believe. It, we have it on the website. It's there for you to read. And we believe this thing right here. We believe it cover to cover. 
It's the word of God. We believe this stuff. But it's funny, when, when we preach something that's difficult, um, almost always people will respond, if they do negatively, they'll respond in a way that they really believe that if we find out that they're not happy with our belief in God, that we'll change our mind. Why? Because they're operating in that world where man's opinion is more important than God's opinion. So that must be true for us. And if we upset somebody, oh my goodness, we're going to change our mind about what the Bible says. The Bible says this, but we want to make people happy. We want to be affirmed by people. It's just goofiness. Donald Guthrie, the scholar, even writes about this. He says, the motives of self-interest and the fallen desires of our deceptive hearts are always an inhibiting factor in faith. All too often, faith is cramped by our fear of other people's reaction to it. In other words, the mind is a slave to the passions. So they don't want to believe because they don't want to be put out of the synagogue. Well, we don't have to worry about being put out of the synagogue, okay? But we have our own little synagogues that we might be put out of. What if my friends don't like me anymore? That's our modern day being put out of a synagogue. I know lots of people who come to Christ in faith, and their friends turn on them. Their friends turn on them. Uh, we're worried about being excluded from the marketplace in some way. We're worried about being forced out of our academic aspirations and power. We're worried about being dismissed by members of our family. Those are all synagogues for us. We don't want to be confronted in our perception, our perception of control and autonomy. You mean I'm really not in control? We don't want to be mocked and blocked on social media. That would be a travesty. We, 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 we're worried that we're not going to be included in the cool stuff in this world that our hearts desire. Do you remember, the, remember when we talked about the man born blind and he was healed? Okay, here you go. They went to his parents and they talked to his parents. His parents did not celebrate that their son could now see. Instead, they were worried that they were going to be put out of the synagogue. This desire to please other human beings is so destructive. So destructive. Uh, Peter, early in his letter, he writes, he says, I'm writing to the elect exiles. Just think about those two words right next to each other. You are elect, God has shown you his favor, and you're in exile. Now you don't fit anywhere. Did you see that? We're inviting you into the tension of the good news of Jesus Christ because there's going to be tension. God shows us favor, but now we kind of don't fit, okay? So, here you go. I know, this, this sermon, this passage, really pedantic and didactic, and for those of you who are like, what are those? Boring and hard, okay? I got that, okay? In so many ways, it's heavy. It's really, really heavy. But in this heaviness, we need to understand is the truth of the gospel, okay? So, come on, Frank, please make me feel better. You know what? Sometimes we don't need to just feel better. Sometimes we just need to sit in it. I'm going to speak again. Don't worry. Just, we need to sit in it. Okay? But, but also, sitting in it, maybe we begin to understand the depth of this truth. 
what the love of Jesus compels, as clearly shown in this passage, and actually, it should make us feel grateful. There should be some measure of joy. It, it, it's not going to make us feel bad. It's just going to open us up to the reality. The reality of being an elect exile. And, and I think that's pretty good. Because we discover that in spite of our falling short and, uh, of the glory of God, those are Paul's words in Romans chapter 3. We have fallen short of the glory of God. In spite of our falling short, God still finds us worthy. That's good news. That's really compelling and should be really compelling. So, a little bit of application. To live as Jesus, I think, especially as this shows, because of the betrayal that's coming his way by Judas, to live as Jesus did risks, uh, requires risk and vulnerability. How many of us walk around going, I am into vulnerability and risk? How many of you have the t-shirt? Okay, right? Okay, two things that we're mostly allergic to, risk and vulnerability. The, to love as Jesus calls us to love requires that risk and vulnerability. It requires us to start moving toward things. Uh, C.S. Lewis once wrote, the only place outside of heaven we can be safe from all the dangers and risks of love is hell. So if you're worried about the risk and danger of, of love, well, hell's a great place to be. Don't have to worry about it there. In other words, when we love as Jesus loved, we're going to find trouble, we're going to be betrayed, and our love will often be repaid with pain. Now, I asked that question earlier about betrayal and, and rejection. You know, a lot of times we don't mind betrayal and rejection, especially if it's from people that we expect are going to betray and reject us. That, we know that some people are just going to do that, and eh, whatever, okay. But the people that are closest to us, the people who say they love us, the people who say they're with us, the people who say they're committed, that they've made a covenant with us, the people that we really believe will love even through the hard times, that's where it gets really painful. And that's what happened to Jesus. These were his own people that betrayed him. Jesus knew of an expected um, betrayal from the Romans and from the professional religious people who were, in a sense, his own people. But, but, but his disciples and kinsmen, the rank-and-file Jews, they betrayed him. In his humanity, that had to have hurt. And it even said in verse 27, he was troubled in his spirit. That had to have hurt. The irony, though, is, of course, is that Jesus' countrymen reject him, but the Greeks, the Gentiles, those that the Jews don't even care for, they want Jesus. They want Jesus. And it's great that the Gentiles were open to Jesus, but it still had to hurt him that God's own people clearly rejected their chosen Savior. This, this, this passage uh, and a lot of chapter 13 in John is as much about Jesus' humanity as anything else. His humanity here. So, you felt deep, painful anguish in your life, I'm sure. Listen to what um, the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 4, verses um, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. He's gone through what we've gone through. Let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace. That's why we can with confidence go. He understands the weakness that we have. He understands the impoverished spirit that we have, and he wants us, he draws us to come to his throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time, in our time of need. You know, think about this again in light of verse 27 in John 12. Love is trouble. Love is trouble. (laughs) The closer you and I get to love, real love, genuine love, the more angst, the more discomfort, the more inconvenience, the more pain. All of that's going to increase. It just does. You know? Um, if you're going to be, here you go, if you're going to be married for 50 years, that is a beautiful thing. That really is. But if you think that that 50 years is always going to look like that first two weeks, you better think again. And I know some of you are like, the first two weeks wasn't that great either. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. You see, we talk about love in, in glorious and romanticized terms, but genuine gospel love pushes purposefully into risk and vulnerability. It presses into trouble. That's hard. Even Jesus indicates he wants out the closer he gets to the cross. Again, this is one of the most human moments of Jesus' ministry. But I would also argue that Jesus is the most vulnerable person who ever lived. He, he, he let it all out. He experiences our temptations and our suffering, Hebrews says that, and yet he goes for it. Jesus dies to his desires and becomes alive to his Father. We're called and empowered by the filling of the Holy Spirit to do exactly the same thing. So Jesus answers his betrayal. (laughs) He goes to the cross. And death is not just death in Jesus' economy because death brings life. And for us, betrayal and the pain that comes with it can in many many ways bring life to us and to others. Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. We can comfort others. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Suffering is universal and unique. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. This brings life. It brings good things. And this is our journey of hope, which leads to love. Uh, it's interesting. Histori- historians have pointed out that for the last hundred years, we human beings have become quite adept at outsourcing anything that has anything to do with death. Have you noticed that? We outsource all of that stuff, okay? Which also means we've lost all the life lessons that come with death. We've lost all of that as well. So here you go. We outsource butchering. So we eat meat without seeing the cost and the death. 
Just, it's just a product. It's just a commodity to us. We, we, we outsource our elderly, which means we have fewer and fewer moments of being nurtured with the wisdom that comes from age and the imminence of death. Do you understand that? And that wisdom can bring life. I've been with lots of people walking through their death, and, and thankfully, they're not concerned about the Blackhawks and the Godfather and the office or even the sons. They have something to say. They know that time is short. They're like Jesus in John chapters 13 through 17, speaking to his disciples the night before he's betrayed. Out of death comes life. Out of pain comes compassion. Drawing close means trouble, but it also means bearing fruit. It means finding meaning and purpose and legacy and significance. And that, my friends, is the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth, and especially, uh, it's not just that Jesus teaches this, and it's not just that his teachings are recorded, but his life, his death, and his resurrection are recorded and become an example for us and for the life that we should desire and aspire to. So God, help us to do that. I pray your Holy Spirit would, would just flood, overflow, those who are here. Fill us, please, with your love, your spirit, your passion, your strength, and your wisdom. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.